0: According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Once again, we are in Proverbs 14. Proverbs 14, and we get our first shot at verses 7, 8, and 9. Proverbs 14, verses 7, 8, and 9. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Remember, God is Spirit. He must be worshiped in spirit and in truth. Make sure we are filled with the Spirit. Let's take a moment for silent prayer. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning and the blessing we have to assemble together. We call upon your faithfulness, Father, to set aside our distractions, to fix our eyes firmly upon Jesus. Father, to uh, lead us in the paths of righteousness for your name's I thank you, Father, for the book of Proverbs. I pray that we would glean the practical applications and uh, let your word speak plainly to us this morning. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. And so to this point, we have studied five points in, he, in uh, Proverbs. We talked about verses 1 through 3 as a three-verse inclusio under point 1. I'll skip through that. Hit the wives and mothers first and then husbands and fathers. We got to point two as we looked at verse four with the empty manger and uh, talked about how hard work is messy and uh, dealt with that. What what is the difference between revenue and much revenue? And why does God want us to have much revenue? Why is that in His will and the blessings of being able to work and produce and uh, save and have an abundance and give and all those things come into uh, verse 4. From point 3 we looked at the liar. There's a truthful person and a liar and we see the contrast here in verse 5. A trustworthy witness will not lie but a false witness utters lies. And uh, beyond the generic face value of this verse of course is the larger picture that spans all of Scripture. The angelic conflict between Satan as the father of lies and Jesus Christ as the faithful and true witness. So we dealt with that. Then we moved on to points four and five, which came out of verse six. A scoffer seeks wisdom and finds none, but knowledge is easy to one who has understanding. And so this was... um, Uh, important for us to go through. We spent a couple of Wednesdays on this detailing the the hindrances to apprehending the Word of God. And and everything that we looked at in those weeks is going to be useful for us this morning because as we get into verse 7 we learn about another hindrance to the Word of God. This one is a personal hindrance in terms of the fools that we surround ourselves with. And uh, they also become obstacles to apprehending truth. And so we'll deal with that under main point 6. But uh, the, the first half of verse 6, the 6a portion of the verse, a scoffer seeks wisdom and finds none. That was perhaps the most interesting thing to me of this whole chapter so far is the fact, why does the scoffer even bother? If the scoffer is, is wrapped up in worldly wisdom to begin with, what does he care about God's wisdom anyway? And uh, why is he seeking it? There seems to be an impulse to search for it even in his foolishness, even as a scoffer, even with carnal-mindedness. So natural-mindedness and carnal-mindedness they are hindrances to apprehending God's wisdom, yet an impulse to search for it somehow remains. And the more I, I, I dwell on that, I think we can use this. I think this can become uh, evangelistic, it can become an apologetic at a certain point and and I've experienced this, maybe you have also in in uh, discussions with atheists and discussions with uh, you know god haters and bible skeptics and folks like that um, uh, there's a uh, I was in a hospital room with a woman that was uh, on hospice getting ready to die and and um you know I, I offered to say a prayer you know that's That's what I do. I'm a pastor and I'm willing to say a prayer. And this man got so uncomfortable. He wanted to leave the room. He said, oh no, don't do that, don't do that. Let me leave the room first. And he wanted to, he did. In fact, not only wanted to, he did. He ran out into the hallway so he wouldn't be in the room while I was praying. And you know, so I have a chance to follow up later and talk to him and ask, well why, why did that make you so uncomfortable? You know? You know why, why is that? Do you ever wonder why your conscience is so bothered? Do you ever wonder why that bothers you so much? You know, I mean, I don't believe in the Easter Bunny, but when people talk about it, it doesn't make me want to leave the room or I don't get uncomfortable i don't get I don't get you know worked up about the the tooth fairy or you know whatever. We can talk about fictional characters all day long. I will not have an emotional reaction like you had when I offered to say a prayer, okay, and this was his own mother that was dying. And he just had such a hatred for, uh, for God, the God that he sh- kept shaking his fist at and not believing in um, kind of a thing. Um, anyway, that's, th- this impulse to search for it somehow remains. And the idea that uh, someone will you know, reject the Bible, but then they want to use a particular Bible verse to support their side. Well, why are you doing that? You don't believe that the, the verse has any value anyway. Why are you using that verse to support your side? What is it that causes you to have that search for wisdom? I think it's a, an impulse that's a part of being in the image of God. So we, did, we looked at that and uh, those verses there from Eve and Genesis 3-6 and, and on through the text. And then finally, uh, doctrine is easy when, when you're in fellowship, you know? When you're following His design, when you're spiritually alive and humble before Him. You know, uh, God will hide things from the intelligent and the wise but reveal them to babes because the babes are hungry and they're humble and they're positive and they want to learn. And, uh, and so wisdom is easy. It starts with the fear of the Lord and uh, we have this here in, in verse 5 and again in verse 7. And that's what we're going to talk about here this morning. This easy path when you're humble. And so when we get to main point 6, now we're ready to open up a triplet a triplet of verses contrasting foolishness and wisdom. We deal with verse seven, verse eight, verse nine as a triplet. A triplet of verses contrasting foolishness and wisdom contains the first imperative in the personal and public wisdom portion of the book of Proverbs. Remember what we're t- when we divide Proverbs into large sections. Okay, Solomon didn't sit down one day and just write Proverbs one one, Proverbs one two, Proverbs one three, you know, and work his way through the virtuous woman of chapter 31. That's not how Proverbs was collected, that's not how Psalms was collected. All right, These were all individual Proverbs that were then compiled, many of them by Solomon, but some centuries after his death. The, the whole collection in 25 and following was in, during the days of Hezekiah when they were gathered together, compiled, and added to the canon. Okay? And so um, we have sections, and I believe as Solomon was compiling his, his wisdom literature before his death that he put the first nine chapters together himself, there's no question the, the, the first 24, the uh, Proverbs of Solomon, the first 24 chapters, and so he took chapters one through nine and put them together in a collection that I have titled Parental Wisdom. All right, parental wisdom. And those first nine chapters are filled with the my son, my son language. Talking to the, to the boy in the second person. Do this, do this, listen to me, listen to my voice, listen to your mother's voice. And uh, that's, that's the first nine chapters. And those chapters are full of commands, full of imperatives. Because that's what you do with little kids. You tell them how to uh, embrace the right thing and not embrace the wrong woman and, and all these things. Well since we got to chapter 10 now we've not seen an imperative not until we get to here. Into 14.7 is our first imperative. And so uh, the, the personal and public wisdom portion of the book, which is the title I've given to chapters 10 through 24, um, this is the first time now that we have an imperative. And the imperative is leave. okay, Leave. That's the imperative. Leave the presence of a fool. Consequences. If you don't or you will not discern lips of knowledge. It's translated words of knowledge, and we've got to decide interpretively here if we're talking about the content of what those lips are saying or the person uh, to whom those lips are connected, alright? And I think that's the better circumstance because there's a contrast between the fool on the one hand and the lips of knowledge on the other hand. But anyway, we'll discuss that. So um, That's the imperative. Let me just read all three verses. Leave the presence of a fool or you will not discern words of knowledge. The wisdom of the sensible is to understand his way, but the foolishness of fools is deceit. Fools mock at sin, but among the upright there is goodwill. And that's our triplet. These are our three verses, okay? And so we've got a comprehensive contrast between foolishness and non-foolishness. And it's neat, I like the variety of terms that are used to describe the other side, right? Uh, To describe the lips of knowledge, to describe the sensible, right? Uh, The wisdom of the sensible, to understand His way. Or the upright. So we want to have lips of knowledge, we want to be sensible, we want to be upright. Those are the three descriptions that are In contrast to uh, the fool. All right, so taking verse 7 and reminding ourselves that we just saw in verse 6 there are hindrances to apprehending God's wisdom. Just as there are hindrances to apprehending God's wisdom, there is an obstacle to identifying messengers of God's wisdom. And here I'm focusing on the people. Right, those lips are connected to a person. <laughs> all right, and so I—that's how I understand verse seven. You will not discern lips of knowledge. You will not discern. You're not going to recognize the, the the true servant of God that has the knowledge for you, because you're surrounded by all these fools. Okay, that's why we're commanded to to leave these fools. So just as there are hindrances to apprehending God's wisdom. There is an obstacle to identifying messengers of god 's wisdom, okay so i 'm taking this to represent the people, not the content of what they're saying and uh, And a lot of commentaries go that way. other commentaries prefer to stress the content, but uh, we, we've already dealt with a content issue in verse six, but uh, the lips is is a big deal in proverbs it's used again and again and again. lips are in contrast to the tongue, lips are in contrast to the mouth. Lips, uh, flattering lips are supposed to be cut off, all right? You don't want to be around a flatterer all the time. The, the person that tells you everything you want to hear and, and tells you you're so great and everything that, uh, all the lies that, that puff up your pride that you love listening to. Uh, you want those lips far from you. And in, uh, in, in we'll see a lot of those in, in different Proverbs. But identifying messengers of God's wisdom. And, uh, and we, we should be quick to identify this because we want to surround ourselves with fellow believers that love the truth, we want to surround ourselves with counselors, with, sort, with uh, encouragers, with believers that are going to be able to have information for us when we need it. And, uh, and especially we want to be humble to recognize it might come from somebody we don't expect. Hey? And so we, we need to recognize you know, out of the mouth of babes there might be wisdom coming to us that we need if we're humble to receive it. And I think part of the problem is, is we surround ourselves with people based upon earthly expectations or carnal-mindedness or other, other things, and we tend to dismiss people to think, well, they don't know anything. They don't know what they're talking about. They're, you know? And so we start to classify people, and we're totally off track when we're doing this. In, in, in fact, what we've done is we've surrounded ourselves with fools, the very people we're told to get away from. Okay, So leave the presence of a fool. And sometimes that's hard. Sometimes that's hard, especially if we have other reasons to uh, to be associated with them in the workplace, or maybe their family, or maybe you know there's holidays we can't get away from them. But you know we just have to recognize that they're fools. Maybe they're earthly smart; they're brilliant in earthly things, but they're fools in the Word of God. And we have to recognize that it's their presence that becomes defiling. It's the uh, it's the proximity. That becomes the snare, because with that proximity comes what? What happens if you're spending time in proximity with all these fools? It rubs off. That's right. Yeah. There's a there's a there's an aura. There's a smell. There's cooties. You know whatever you think about. But there is it's an attitudinal thing. That foolishness starts to shape the um, the discussions, the topics of things that are spoken about, the the just the attitude of things when when something happens. Okay, and uh, and it's it's curious to me how that that aura that 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 attitude just kind of it's like a pig pen in the in the Charlie Brown cartoons, right? It's just this cloud that surrounds certain people, and you don't want to be near that cloud. And uh, that's what we're dealing with. All right. Uh, in fact, if you back up to chapter thirteen, uh, I've kind of already preached this um, from verse twenty. "...he who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm." And, the, and, and so there's the contrast. And you might recall when we discussed it in chapter 13, there's the walk which speaks, that it takes time to walk. I mean, what's the journey? What's the, uh, how long are you walking with them? Are you, what, what does it mean to be a companion? This is not just a, a short thing, this is long-term exposure to these fools. And uh, the companion of fools will suffer harm. You didn't do anything wrong except you were in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong people and why were you there? (laughs) Okay? And what did you expect when you're going to be in a place like that? So um, different things there. Uh, Other wisdom literature speaks of this. How about Psalm 119? This young man knew about wisdom and how to Surround himself with the right people and avoid the wrong people. How can a young man keep his way pure? And uh, so many things in this psalm. Down to verse 115. I don't think Bob got this far before he left the state. Um, But it starts in verse 113, the, the psalmic strophe. Okay? All of these verses start with the Hebrew letter, Psalmic. It's alphabetized so you can memorize it and work your way through. Um, but it starts with hate. I hate those who are double-minded, but I love your law. I don't think the psalmist would get along well with 21st century American Christianity where hate is automatically you know, reactionary and, and wrong and you can't be a hater. If you're a hater then you don't have any love. Well, this guy had all kinds of hate because he had love for the Word of God. And that's what I think we should be trained to develop. And uh, also don't fall for the lie about hating the uh, you know, hate the sin but love the sinner. This is hating people those who are double-minded. This uh, the psalmist isn't saying, well you know I hate the sin of double-mindedness but I still love the double-minded person. It says here I hate those people who are double-minded. But I love your law. You are my hiding place and my shield. I wait for your word. Depart from me, evildoers. Okay? And so this is kind of the flip side of what we're studying this morning, right? In Proverbs 14, we're told you depart. Okay? Get out of there. Depart from the fool. Here, the psalmist is ordering the evildoer to depart. He's telling the other guy to get out of here. All right? And so we deal with it there. Depart from me, evildoers, that I may observe the commandments of my God. There's a purpose clause for why he's telling them to depart. And if they don't depart, or if he doesn't depart, if they don't separate somehow, there's a consequence. And what he's afraid of, the consequence in his case, is he's afraid that if he doesn't depart from them, then he's not going to observe the commandments of my God. That's the purpose clause for their departure. So that I may, so that I can, so that I will observe the commandments of my God. And I mean, this is smart on his part, I think. You you have friends like that or maybe you used to years ago, you know, and, and you think, you know, I just, it was guaranteed if I was going to spend an afternoon with so-and-so, yeah, sooner or later we were, this is where we was going to go, this is what we were going to do, okay? Because that's what we do with that group. That's what we do in that setting. That's, you know, whatever it is. And uh, <laughs> you have to know that. So um, it's, an, it's, an, it's a hindrance to apprehending God's wisdom. It's an obstacle to living it out. It's an obstacle to applying it. There, there are people that will contribute to your spiritual walk and there are people that will trip it up. There are stumbling blocks. Woe to this world because of their stumbling blocks. How about Isaiah? Isaiah 56. And, uh, and this one's easy too. I think this is uh, <laughs> kind of an attitude and a hindrance. Um, let me back up. See there's a warning here that we taught what, last year sometime when we were in Isaiah? Before Jeremiah we were in Isaiah. Alright. You, you don't remember this? Alright, so Isaiah 56. Um, the problem is, is what happens when shepherds are asleep? And what happens, um, like in verse 9, all of you beasts of the field, all of you beasts of the forest, come and eat. You know, it's an open invitation when the shepherd is asleep. You know, it's like the dinner bell just got rung because the shepherd's asleep and you just come in and eat what you want. His watchmen are blind. All of them know nothing. You got Sergeant Schultz on guard duty and he sees nothing, right? Um, I know nothing. That's it right there. And all of them are mute dogs, unable to bark. Kind of a useless guard dog if he can't bark, okay? And uh, dreamers lying down who love to slumber. All the dogs are greedy, they're not satisfied, they are shepherds who have no understanding, they have all turned to their own way, each one to his unjust gain, to the last one. And then what happens? Come, they say, let us get wine, let us drink heavily of strong drink. Tomorrow will be like today, only more so. (laughs) We're going to have fun today, we're going to have even more fun tomorrow, and it's just every day is a bigger party than the next. And this is the consequence of not separating from these fools this is what happens when you're not separating and and either making them depart or you depart or if you're asleep at the switch and you're not uh you know like an Amtrak driver in Seattle you're uh you're asleep at the switch and you're going around a curve and don't even know and uh here comes the crash so there it is all right Uh, 1 Corinthians 15.33 how about one from the New Testament 1 Corinthians 15.33 do not be deceived bad company corrupts good morals right? it's going to rub off it's going to rub off and now I recognize, of course, you want to be a witness. I recognize, of course, if you want to be able to communicate the gospel, you want to testify to the truth of God's word. Um, how are you doing that? Just by your, you expect that the aura of your godliness is going to rub off on them? <laughs> or do you have to say something? Do you have to, because the aura of their ungodliness is what's going to rub off on you. Clean garment, dirty garment, rub them together. Which way does it rub? The clean gets dirty every time, okay. And so, if you want to be a witness, you want to be a testimony. That's one thing, okay. And and you got it. And maybe that when you separate, that's your venue to explain why. Related to that, did you have a question? Right. And that is your opportunity. That in a grace way, you want to explain to them. Look, I'm not. I'm not judging you. I'm not legalistic. But this is why I have to separate, and this is why I cannot be a partaker. And just use the opportunity to say, look, I'm I'm conducting my life in, under biblical norms and standards, and and you're living your life under this other whatever, and uh, and for the for the health of my own soul, I cannot be in 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 connection with that. And, and hey, I'm not telling you what to do, and I'm not judging you, and whatever, whatever. You got to answer to the Lord like I do, and, and it depends if you're talking to a believer that should know better. If you're talking to an unbeliever, I don't. You know, an unbeliever. I have no expectations of an unbeliever. You know, it's like trying to convince a dog to quit barking or something. You know, uh, it's just what dogs do. Okay, that's what unbelievers do. Of course, they're sinning, and that's that's not uh, not a shock or a surprise. Anyway, so that's good. We have uh, we have this now. There's a whole doctrine on separation, by the way, and and churches that specialize in this that that go be beyond uh, what is written, and in and, and the Bible warns us about exceeding what is written. And so, um, you know, it's one thing to to separate from the from the sinner as we're commanded to do, and there's other passages I think that I include. Yeah, we'll see some other ones. In fact, point B. Let me just get to point B as we talk about separation. But there are churches that will practice secondary separation, where not only do I have to separate from the wicked people, but if I've got a brother who's not separating from the wicked people, then i got to separate from him. Secondary separation, see. Because you're not separating from the people I'm separating from, i got to separate from you. Okay, Now you're not doing anything wrong except for the fact that you're not separating from the people I, I'm separating from. And so that become secondary. And then tertiary, oh my goodness. How far do we stretch this? So, uh, back to Proverbs then. Leave the presence of a fool or you will not discern words of knowledge. So I kind of covered the 7B part first, took that a little bit out of order. Now uh, we'll back up to the 7A part. Uh, Separation is desirable, it is advisable, and it is commanded. Separation is desirable, advisable, and commanded. Desirable, advisable, and commanded. And I think we can find scriptures to prove all three. Uh, clearly the command, we've can we we've seen some already, and here's a command, leave, that's a command. Um, but clearly it's advisable in, in other passages that maybe don't issue the imperative but they outline what are the benefits by surrounding yourself with with believers and what is the non benefits or the the negative effects of surrounding yourself with um unbelievers surrounding yourself with with fools okay you know you recognize that they may not be imperatives but when they're outlining the consequences for not doing something doesn't that kind of leave it to your own volition to say well clearly i don't want any part of that that's that's what makes it desirable and advisable. Um, I also think the desire is itself a benefit. If it is desirable when you're in fellowship (laughs) and then you find during times of being out of fellowship, during times of carnality that you don't really have that desire anymore. In fact you've got kind of the opposite desire. You kind of want to be with those people. That should be a red flag. That ought to be a wake-up call. That should be the Holy Spirit poking you in the shoulder saying, hello? Isn't this desirable to be away from those people? If you've got a desire to be with those people then uh, you realize you're playing with something here? You're playing with the carnality? You're playing with the temptation? Anyway, there uh, there is that. I think uh, this uh, comes across in a lot of scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament alike. I think uh, the harmful effects of not separating become destructive in those venues. Exodus 23 verses 32 and 33 for example. Why is it advisable and commanded for the uh, Exodus generation when they enter into the land of promise? Because there's consequences when you don't. Exodus 23. Uh starting in verse Well, where do you start? Um they come through the Red Sea, they get the law. Um they're getting ready now to proceed. They're get, they're being given warnings about uh conquering the land. And uh I guess starting in verse 20. Behold, I'm going to send an angel before you to guard you along the way to bring you into the place which I have prepared. So they've got to go to the promised land by faith and his angels going in front of them. So They should just claim that as a promise and not be scared of the giants when they get there, right? I mean, isn't that what Caleb and, and uh, Joshua said? Um... Anyway, be on your guard before Him and obey His voice. Do not be rebellious toward Him. He will not pardon your transgression, since My name is in Him. Not just any angel, this is the angel of Yahweh. This is Jesus Christ Himself. But if you truly obey His voice and do all that I say then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. For My angel will go before you and bring you into the land of the Amorite, Hittites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hivites, Jebusites. I will completely destroy them. And you think, wow, that's great. But look what it says You shall not worship their gods, nor serve them, nor do according to their deeds, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their sacred pillars in pieces. So, you know, conquering the giants and taking the land and invading and all of that, that's the least of their worries. The biggest danger for them is the idolatry when they get there. The biggest danger, of course, is that they're going to adopt the idolatrous practice of these seven nations that God is destroying. And so, um, anyway, there's other consequences here. See, God's in charge of real estate. God's in charge of territory. When He takes it away from one people and gives it to another people, that's His business. That's His business. So, um, So, overthrow the idols, break them down. But you shall serve the Lord your God. He will bless your bread and your water. I will remove sickness from your midst. And so there's food grace, there's disease grace, there's a land that's blessed in, uh, in this. There should be no one miscarrying or barren in your land. I, w- I will fulfill the number of your days. So how about that? Infant mortality and, and uh, all these other things that nations uh, deal with in their demographic studies. When you're aligned to the will of God there's temporal life blessings. I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion all the people among whom you come. I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. I will send hornets ahead of you so that they will drive out the Hivites, Canaanites, Hittites before you. I will not drive them out before you in a single year. He's going to pace this because he's smart that the land may not become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. So it's going to happen in stages. it going to happen incrementally where they can have land management over the uh, the wildlife. I will drive them out before you little by little until you become fruitful and take possession of the land. I will fix your boundary from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the uh, wilderness to the river Euphrates. For I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you will drive them out before you. So there's boundaries. And so a people group is being brought out of Egypt and they're being placed in this territory. And they are becoming the new nation in this territory, all right. And this is God's business. Acts chapter seventeen says this is God's business to set these boundaries. And when He removes a people, that's God's business, all right. And I know it's a little bit of a side trip this morning, but this came up in a in a argument and uh, in a Facebook thing. You know, those are always edifying. And 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 I learned later that one of the participants in this um, heated thing was uh, of Native American ancestry and descent. In fact, very much an, an activist in Indian, Native American rights and, and tribal rights and whatever in, in a tribe that's not federally recognized but, but wants to be. And of course their land was taken from them and the evil white people came and took their land and all this stuff. So it gets personal in In different discussions, depending on who you're talking to all right and so try to t- step back and not make it so personal and just try to keep it biblical and ask yourself, okay if God is in charge of this, then what are the blessings along the way <laughs> okay what are the blessings when a when a pagan godless cannibalistic slaving enslaving raping whatever when a you know, when a when a when a people group, when the iniquity of the Amorite is complete, what what is the grace of God in, first of all, giving a warning, and secondly, giving time to repent, and thirdly, providing for a remnant to come out from their midst and be ye separate, providing for a descendant of an extinct people group to become a part of a new people group that is under God's blessing. All right. So, man, praise God that. The gospel of Jesus Christ came. How about that? Okay, and that you're not a, a, a an ignorant, you're not a, a devil worshiper. How about that? Isn't that a good thing? Okay, different aspects there. Anyway, some of this uh, just gets personal beyond the arguments you have with people in in different things. Um, I worked with a guy at the sheriff's department, thankful as anything because he was African-American that that his uh, ancestors were slaves. He says, yeah, that got us out of the paganism of Africa. That brought us to America. And hey, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ now. I'm not a a Muslim or whatever in uh, in Africa. And he thought it was the greatest thing in the world. Anyway. Uh, Let's wrap up the chapter here. It says are you still with me? Exodus 23. Verse 32, you shall make no covenant with them or with their gods. They shall not live in your land because they will make you sin against me. This is why you had to drive them out. You didn't have to do genocide, you didn't have to kill them all. The ones that left, let them go. But uh, the ones that want to stay can't stay. That's the that's the conquest, okay? Because this land is not theirs anymore. This land is, is your land. All right. They shall not live in your land because they will make you sin against me for if you serve their gods it will surely be a snare to you. That's uh, that's the issue here. It's desirable, advisable, and commanded. Over to chapter 34 he restates it in verse 12. Thirty-four, twelve. Verse 11 says, be sure... Let's see. Verse 10, God said, "...Behold, I'm going to make a covenant before, uh, before all your people I will perform miracles which have not been produced in all of the earth nor among any of the nations, and all the people among whom you live will see the working of the Lord, for it is a fearful thing that I'm going to perform with you." All of your neighbors are going to be looking at you and saying, wow, our God doesn't do that. The yeah. gods of the Egyptians were powerless against the God of Israel, the gods of the Philistines, the gods of, of everybody watching be sure to observe what I am commanding you this day. Behold, I'm going to drive out the Amorite before you, the Canaanite, the Hittite, Perizzite, Hivite, the Jebusite. He promised them, he said, seven nations greater and mightier than you, and I will destroy them. Watch yourself that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you are going, for it will become a snare in your midst. And this snare, this covenant in the New Testament it says, do not be unequally yoked. Do not be bound together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath light with darkness? Right? It will become a snare in your midst, but rather you are to tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and cut down their asherim. Anyway, it's a it's a snare and you've got to avoid it. Even worse, you might intermarry with them. You might eat of their sacrifices. You might do these things. Verse um, 15. Otherwise you might make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and they would play the harlot with their gods and sacrifice to their gods and someone might invite you to eat of his sacrifice. And you might take some of his daughters for your sons and his daughters might play the harlot with their gods and cause your sons also to play the harlot with their gods. You know your kids grow up they start dating and you realize, hmm, that boy wasn't raised like my girl was raised. They got different norms and standards. They have a different outlook on things. All right. Deuteronomy 7, the first six verses of Deuteronomy 7. And so uh now we get to the next generation. I mean we gotta we gotta teach this all over again? <laughs> yep. Your parents didn't learn this lesson, you've got to learn this lesson. The the Exodus generation died failures in the wilderness. And now here comes the next generation that's gonna go in and conquer. They're gonna have the same warnings given all over again. And so uh It comes down to this. When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and stronger than you. I'm not going to go into it this morning, but just write that verse down. Make yourself a note, make a mental note or a paper note, whatever you need to do. The, uh, because this affects your studies of large numbers in numbers. How many, what was the population of Israel when they left Egypt? What was the population of their standing army when they left Egypt? Okay. And you realize we've got issues with the Masoretic text, we have issues with the King James numbers that have come even now down to the, the New American Standard numbers and that. that. We don't have 600,000 soldiers under arms, 3 million Israelis walking through the Red Sea. Because if, if we really have 600,000 Israeli soldiers under arms they never had to leave Egypt. They could have just conquered Egypt and conquered the world. Nobody had a standing army of that size in that era. Okay? Anyway. And so you start to do the ar- Titus Kennedy is great for this by the way. You do all the archaeology of the of the Bronze Age, of the, of the Exodus and the uh, conquest and the Judges era of the Old Testament and it uh, becomes pretty clear that we have to adjust the numbers and we see what the problem is with the Masoretic numbers and we're fine with it. Anyway, um, just mental note and perhaps we'll touch upon that in, in some later studies. Uh, Titus has a book by the way, it should be coming out in January and I'm eager to, uh, eager to read it. Anyway, seven nations greater and stronger than you and when the Lord your God delivers them before you and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them, you shall make no covenant with them, show no favor to them. This is not a time for their favor. They've had that. They've had their mercy. They've had their time of repentance. It was during the 400 years that Israel was in bondage. Now the iniquity is complete and it's time for their destruction. Furthermore you shall not intermarry with them, you shall not give your daughters to their sons, take their daughters to your sons. We're not going to let this people group survive to the next generation. Not here, not in this land. If they flee, if they they, can be refugees elsewhere, they're not going to be refugees here for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you. He will quickly destroy you. Thus you shall do to them. You shall tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, hew down their asherim, burn their graven images with fire. It says nothing about celebrating diversity and admiring their culture's um, contributions to your nation. Just side trip. All right. For you are a holy people. Notice, you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His own possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, out of every people group on the planet, He chose you. Okay? Isn't that amazing? Not because He had to, not because you were special. (laughs) He didn't set His love on you or choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you were the fewest of the peoples. He didn't pick you because He was impressed with your size. Because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which He swore to your forefathers. The Lord brought you out by a mighty hand redeemed you from the house of slavery. He took a people that were slaves. Aliens and strangers. They weren't Egyptian but they were an enslaved people group within the Egyptian sovereignty, within the Egyptian nation. And He brought them out, gave them a nation of their own. All right. And so uh, that's it. How about Isaiah 52, 11? Back to Isaiah. Were we just there? Oh, we were in 53. Where were we? No, we were in 56. All right, Isaiah fifty-two eleven. And of course, this is within the uh, the the tandem, the tandem of Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53. And so, there's a lot of messianic um, uh, prophecy and excitement about uh, the coming messianic kingdom, and uh, a little bit of a history on how he's uh, blessed them and what he's about to do with them. Um, These are fun chapters. I think um, I'm headed for verse eleven, ultimately. But there's there's quite a difference, though, between the Exodus and the return from captivity. So just pay attention when we when look at verse four. Thus says the Lord God: My people went down at first into Egypt to reside there. Then the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. All right. So there's kind of two episodes in Israel's history. The bondage in Egypt and then the captivity, right? But God has been faithful. He birthed them out of Egypt, but then He brought them back from captivity. And ultimately bringing them back from captivity is a picture of what He's going to do when, uh, when Christ comes at second advent when He ushers in the uh, the millennial kingdom. And so that's what we see here. Now, with the recognition that the kingdom is at hand, that's, that's the context for this. Um, Verse 7, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. Talk about a gospel, okay? That's good news. Good news of the kingdom. Good news for the Jewish people that their king reigns. Uh, Say to Zion, your God reigns. All of this is Jewish in its context. And uh, so you've got watchmen. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. They shout joyfully together, for they will see with their own eyes when the Lord restores Zion. Watchmen should be alert to see this. They will be alert to see this at second Advent. It's going to take tribulation to wake them up. Sadly, at first Advent, most of them were asleep. The religious leaders rejected the Christ. And and at first Advent, even though the kingdom was at hand, they, uh, they did not accept Him. And so... We see it here. Verse 10: The Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. And that will be fulfilled in the tribulation at the second advent of Jesus Christ. Depart, depart, go out from there, touch nothing unclean. And this is it. This is the the come out from among them and be ye separate imperative that gets quoted in, in 1 Corinthians, right, for our application in the church. But the original application was for Israel at the coming of their king, at the coming of their kingdom. This is why John the Baptist was preaching repentance. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is why Jesus and the disciples were giving that message of repentance. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, If a holy people is going to enter into that millennial kingdom, then they've got to get adjusted to the kingdom of holiness right here, right now. Are we we clear on that? That's a repentance message that is in view of the arrival of the kingdom of heaven on earth. It is not a message that we give when we're telling an unbeliever to believe in Christ for eternal life. Okay? Are we clear on that? I'm not going to tell an unbeliever to repent. I'm going to tell an unbeliever to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Repent is in connection to the coming of the king and the entrance into the kingdom. So depart, depart, go out from there, touch nothing unclean. Go out of the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who carry the vessels of the Lord. But you will not go out in haste. Remember the Exodus? They went out in haste. Remember, they had to stand up while they were eating. They had their feet shot. They were going to go out in haste. And every year after that, when they observe passover they did, they had this element of haste in their in their ritual in their in their passover observance not so as this gets commemorated nor will you go as fugitives before the lord will go before you the lord of israel will be your rear guard when he brings in the kingdom it's different from passover okay anyway that's what uh we see here. And then it introduces the exalted servant, then it introduces the suffering servant. It's going to require the Lamb of God to uh, redeem them from their sins. It's a fun chapter. That's Isaiah 52. It gets quoted in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. Let's look at these. 1 Corinthians 5 Verses 11 and 12, backing up to verse 9. The problem here in 1 Corinthians 5 is they've got a sinner, a a gross, flagrant sinner. One that's publicly known, one that's just flaunting it in front of everybody and the church leaders aren't doing anything about it. This man, this fornicator with his mother, um, the man of incest here, and uh, their boasting is not good. They've become arrogant, they've not mourned, they've uh, they've not removed this wicked man from their midst. Okay, so you remember this? This is the context. It is actually reported that there's immorality, fornication among you, and fornication of such a kind does not even exist among the Gentiles. That someone has his father's wife. Even unbelievers don't do this. What's this guy doing? And you have become arrogant. And if not mourned instead so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. Why is he still there? Because you're arrogant and you're letting, you're boasting and you're keeping him there. You're showing your grace and your tolerance which is no such thing. You're showing your compromise uh, with sin is what you're showing. And so Paul decided to remove him. Paul decided in in the name of Jesus this guy uh, has to be removed. I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. How about that? Sin unto death is a mercy. Sin unto death um, takes the, takes the, the uh, believer out early so that uh, he has something left at the, at the judgment seat of Christ. That he's not wrecking everything and throwing everything away. Uh, between that. If he lived longer how much more damage is he going to do? So your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. All right, verse 9, I wrote you in my letter. What letter is that? It's a letter before 1 Corinthians, okay? So if you want to think of 1 Corinthians as first but not really 1 Corinthians, you can. There was a letter prior to 1 Corinthians and he says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with fornicators. I was not talking about the fornicators of the world or with the covetous and swindlers or idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. We're not talking about the unbeliever, we're not talking about planet Earth, how are you going to get, you know, you're always going to have unbelievers around. But I actually wrote that you would not associate with any so-called brother. Anyone that names the name of Christ, a named brother. If he is a fornicator or a covetous or a idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. And that describes the degree of the separation. Not even to eat with such a one. So not only is he not a part of the assembly, he doesn't attend here, he doesn't attend services. Uh, if he, he would be welcome if he was repentant. But before he comes back the, the pastor wants to talk to him. Make sure this is a repentant return. And in the meantime, not even to eat with such a one. That's that's beyond here. We're talking social life, we're talking other engagements. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within? Those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked from among yourself. And so this sets the parameters and the boundaries for our doctrine of separation. All right? We're not. We're not legalistic. We're not condemning. We're not Bible thumping, fire breathing. uh, We're not. uh, We're not going to go to a funeral and protest and say, you know, God hates what's that? That that idiot. um, I hate that Westboro Baptist Church group that just gives a bad name to Christians, right? You know, they're always in the news, and the media loves to put them in the news. You think what a bunch of buffoons? We're talking about a small church of ten people in Kansas. You know, why do they get all the news coverage? Because it serves <laughs> the purpose of the adversary to try to paint all Christians as a bunch of kooks, that's why. Remove the wicked from among yourself. And uh, either you depart personally or you make them depart, remove the wicked one from your. We don't, we're not in charge of Austin, we're not in charge of Texas, we're not in charge of the United States, we're in charge of Austin Bible Church. Okay? And I think even within From flock to flock. I don't tell Pastor Cliff how to run his church or Pastor Dan or whatever. This is us. Okay? And uh, we deal with us. And that's what uh, crosses then into chapter 6 where it talks about lawsuits and handling things among yourselves and why are you going to the unbelieving court? Why do you uh, go to an earthly court with a a secular judge? Deal with it. Solve your own issues. Over to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And this whole idea of bound together. And by the way, remember it's, it's not strictly a marriage text, but marriage is a venue in which binding takes place and so that is an application, but Business partners could be bound together, that would be another application. Church members, that's another application. Uh associations, that's another app that's another um association, okay, where you're bound together. What do you let your name be attached to? Okay. What is it that you will let your name appear on a list? And then there's other lists, and you say, Well, I'm not comfortable being identified with uh with that list, and here's why. See? Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? It's a hypothetical, rhetorical question. The answer is none, zero, right? Zip, zero, nada. There is no partnership. What fellowship has light with darkness? None. Zip, zero, nada. Now you might have a friendship. You might have a mutually compatible sin nature, and so you can, <laughs> you can, you know. Have a marvelous time when in come to social life with something. Okay? You like uh, football, they like football. You sit down, you watch a football game together, you drink a beverage, you, you whatever. Um, that's not fellowship. That's social life. Don't confuse them. Fellowship is with the Father and the Son and with other believers that have capacity to fellowship with the Father and the Son. What harmony has Christ with Belial? Well, you know, we try to find common ground. There is no common ground between Christ and Belial. <laughs> and, and, and uh, yeah. I The temple of God with idols. What has a believer in common with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said. And so we have an Old Testament reality that is not brought into a New Testament reality on an even greater basis because of the spiritual truth of what the body of Christ really is. And uh, we got our own application to make. And it's it's interesting because Israel was an, an earthly nation that was surrounded, had boundaries, had Gentiles north and south and east, Mediterranean to the west, but they had Gentiles around them, they had Gentile nations around them. We on the other hand are neither Jew nor Gentile and we're sprinkled around this planet in the midst of what? A whole lot of unbelievers. And yet we still come out from among their midst and be separate. We still identify as the temple of God. We still identify as a holy people in the midst of this darkness. So we are the temple of the living God, just as God said. "'I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people.'" That was true for Israel. That's also true for us. It will be true for Israel again. Israel has a future. Therefore come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will welcome you. We don't have all the law and all the ritual and all the ceremony, but we still have clean versus unclean distinctions as church-age believers. It's called being in fellowship or out of fellowship. It's called being defiled or being holy. That's still a reality for us in the church age. And uh, I will welcome you. I will be a father to you. You will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. And so this is the fellowship basis for our sonship and what we have here with the Father. And not being bound together. And I think this is this is uh something else too, in the sense that um, like I say, it's not a marriage text, but it's the, it's the first application I think of. <laughs> okay, the very first one I think of. Uh, because those intermarriage warnings in in uh, Exodus, and you know, don't give their sons to your daughters, don't take their daughters for your sons, and and why? Because see, if you're married to an unbeliever, now you're stuck, <laughs> because now you got commands to not divorce, but you got commands to come out from their midst and be separate. <laughs> what do you do? I'm married to an unbeliever, but he hates the Lord, and oh, you know, and so now I'm uh, now I'm in this no-win thing, right? Well. What do I do? Well, you, you, you know, so, all right, you, you, you sinned by marrying an unbeliever. You're going to make a second sin by divorcing him? What are you going to do? Are you going to be a witness and testimony? What do you do? Okay. Anyway, that's why we recommend single people, don't put yourself in that position. You can't marry an unbeliever, don't date an unbeliever. Why get emotionally attached to somebody that you know you can't marry? Oh, but I'm going to change him. I'm going to change him. I'm going to lead him to Christ. Uh, you think so. All right. Well, then be an evangelist. Don't be a, a romantic partner. <laughs> okay. Get them saved and then date them. How about that? Anyway. Just my thoughts. All right. I've got an adult daughter and one that thinks she's an adult. and We're getting there. We're getting to those ages. All right. What am I looking at? All right. So that's verse 7. The A part and the B part of verse 7. We've got to deal with um, verse 8 that has an A part and a B part. Verse 9 that has an A part and a B part. So next week we'll come back. The wisdom of the sensible is to understand His way. You know, we're supposed to run with endurance the race that's set before us. We're supposed to know our way. How many of us know our way? And, And do we make it more complicated than it needs to be? I think we do. Okay. Uh, but the fool, the foolishness of fools is deceit. He doesn't care about his way. He's just lying to himself anyway, so it doesn't matter. And then fools mock at sin. Don't mock at sin. Don't play with sin. Don't toy with sin. Don't think, well, I can just rebound later. You're mocking at sin, and that's a fool. So we'll deal with that. That's points C, D, E, and F, by the way, when we tackle 8A, 8B, 9A, 9B. So that's how we're going to outline that. Father, I thank You for Your faithfulness. I thank You for this time together. Thank You for um, all of Your grace. Thank You for the time away, Father, and the blessing to be back. Just thank You and praise You, Father, in Christ's name. Amen.